Search, browse, buy. Black Press Media brings you today's drive. Find your new vehicle on our exclusive platform and get driving. At todaysdrive.com, you'll have access to inventory across B.C. where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. With new and used vehicles from the dealership around the corner and dealers across B.C., the best venue to find your next vehicle is todaysdrive.com. Hi, Mike. Welcome back. We are kicking off at season six of Haven's podcast, Measure Twice, Cut Once, here at Ramey Film Studio. Hey, Jennifer Lee. It's always great to be in the studio with you and JPod Creations and the Haven team. This season will be focused on meeting industry-leading builders and designers and exploring their Haven award-winning projects. They'll be sharing their challenges, creative solutions, and even some budgets, too. Talking with industry-leading builders and designers is like opening a door into the future. We get to see and learn about the latest building science, design, and building solutions. As an example, we're going to be meeting with Custom Home Builder of the Year, Jim Smith, and then our good friend Todd Best from Best Builders, who won several Innovation Environmental Awards. And speaking of innovation, we have a special guest today to help us kick off Season 6, BC's Minister of Housing, the Honourable Ravi Kellan. Ravi Callan was first elected as MLA for Delta North in May 2017. He is BC's Minister of Housing under Premier David Eby. He previously served as the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, and before that held several parliamentary secretary roles. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. Great to have you here. And yet, if you were the only guest here today, it would already be an op great episode but wait there's more we have some bonuses we also have jake fry the founder of small works joining us focused on building laneways i believe over 400 laneways have been built in metro vancouver alone by small works now pretty impressive and jake is also the co-founder of small housing bc focused on accelerating the adoption of gentle diversification across bc we've had jake in the studio several times now we're always pleased to have you back welcome back jake thank you so much and finally, we have Haven CEO Ron Rapp calling in today. Ron's been in the industry for 40 plus years and having overseen the planning, design, delivery and customer service for over 10,000 homes, Ron knows a thing or two about the housing industry. Welcome, Ron. Uh, thank you so much, Jen and Mike, and thank you so much, uh, Minister Callan, for joining us today. Perfect. We're really excited. We're going to dive right into it. We're just going to get right into it. Uh, Ravi, can you explain the Housing Supply Act for anybody that might not know about it yet? Well, I think uh, folks uh, that have been following this uh, know that we have a serious housing challenge. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert, right? And one of the things, you know, I think to back up for one sec before I tell you about the Supply Act is why we're doing it. You know, I have folks in my communities, young families, who are like, hey, I don't know if British Columbia can be my home anymore. I'm going to have to, I'm considering leaving this province. And we've got seniors who are like, hey, I don't know if my kids leave, what am I going to do? Am I going to go with them? Do I have to leave the province? And so, you know, the way we've been doing things, the way we've been advancing decision-making on housing, it's just simply not working. We've got to, we've got to change the system. And so the Supply Act essentially gives me as the Minister of Housing the ability to pick 10 communities um, and say to those 10 communities, hey, we need you to be part of the solution. Uh, and uh, in, in order for us to achieve the housing goals that we need, we need you to do X, Y, Z. So uh, the way we're doing it now is we've just finished meeting with local governments. We're saying to them, hey, we need you to come up with uh, a plan that shows how you're going to deliver 
this many one bedrooms, this many two bedrooms, this many three bedrooms. Uh, this is the level of housing you'll need to get some level of affordability. So nurses, doctors, teachers can actually live in your community, you know, so they don't have to commute from an hour and a half away. And um, so for the conversations are going really well. And uh, and then the next step is actually delivering on those um, on those commitments that they'll be making public. And we have the ability first over six months to monitor their progress. Uh, if at six months we feel that there's no progress being made, we will put an independent person in to assess what the issue is. And if at that point it's you know comes to the point where the city doesn't want to participate at all, and then we have the ability to step in and actually make some decisions in that community. And we don't want to go there. Um, we're certainly hoping that we don't have to because so far it's been you know generally positive. But we have the ability to do, and we will if we need to. So that's really exciting news, and I think I want to sort of change the topic a little bit. Like we know what this is. Let's talk about how this is going to help achieve its goals. Because breaking it down, it's easy to say, but we have a couple builders in the room with us as well who can talk about the actual implementation as well. So there's four tactics. Do we want to talk about those tactics? Sure, I'm happy to talk about it, and and, and Jake and others will certainly want to weigh in on uh, on on the challenges to get the housing online. Okay, so for our listeners and viewers, I'm just going to quickly read what they are, and then we can have a discussion about that because I think this is some exciting stuff. Number one is to digitize municipal approvals processes. Number two, streamline provincial approval. Three, generate a list of municipalities with the greatest needs and highest projected growth. And four, province-wide land use changes. So that means four to six units on a single family lot. So now that we know what they are, let's talk about how they're going to help solve this challenge that lays in front of all of us in this industry and the government, all of us. We're all dealing with it. Yeah, uh, Jake, you want to jump in? I, I'd love to jump in and talk a little bit. I mean, I think these initiatives are really uh, laudable, and, and, and I also think, more importantly, they're achievable. I mean, they really target viability and affordability, attainability, as I like to call it. But uh, I think there's a couple of things. Really, what we need to do is we've had a longstanding um, arrangement with most municipalities and regulatory bodies where they are functioning to restrict and I think a lot of the issues we have around our ability to deliver housing, both as practitioners and as consumers to obtain housing, really re reflect is reflected in the fact that that housing production has been done with a relatively exclusive lens in the sense that, that restrictions have created exclusivity. And if there's anything that's really driven kind of the speculative market that we complain about, it really falls down to that. And so to, to break that little lock or that keystone that's going to really unlock the housing that we need to be able to produce in a way that is going to both deliver something that's modest, relivable, but more importantly, something that can be widespread and share that land amongst the community. So people who live in the neighborhoods can benefit from this. People who want to live in those neighborhoods can benefit from it. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll jump into kind of specific pieces of it. And the, the first one is the one that excites me the most, maybe because I'm a bit of a tech geek, um, which is around the digitization of the of the process. You know, uh, I visit uh, local governments and I uh, have this little thing where I try to talk to the planners and I ask them the same question, but I ask every planner the same question to see if I get the same answer, and I never do. The answer is always different, you know? So I'll say, hey, uh, what are you looking at when a project comes to you? And they'll give me the list and then I'll ask the next planner and I'll go away and I'll come back and ask somebody else and they'll give me a different list. And so if we don't have kind of a streamlined approach of how we're looking at every single application that comes in, 
that's why we get so much uh, variance between decisions on and project from project. And so part of our goal around digitizing the process is we have 15 communities that have agreed to be pilot jurisdictions. Uh, and that's huge because what happens normally is every community goes and does their own thing and a builder says, hey, I'll work in that community. I won't work here. It's too complicated. We are now finally getting communities to say, we're going to do this together. We're going to do one system where we're going to move towards digitizing the building code. And so what the we're going to start with building permits. And so what will happen is that um, we will take the first step of digitizing the building code, which is, you know, a PDF, which is the easiest one, but we're moving to BIM enabled. So eventually, very soon in the near future, a project that's designed in BIM will be able to be submitted and within seconds to be able to check against the building code. We'll be the first jurisdiction in Canada to do that. We have uh, 15 communities that have signed on uh, to uh, to be leaders in that. And not only that, when the application goes in, it automatically will get filtered to the appropriate agency. So if it needs to go to the forestry or environment or the lo whichever local government, the application will go there and perhaps at some stage, we'll be able to see the comments each community is making so that we can have some more transparency on our decision making. So um, I geek out about it, but I think it's huge. Um, and, you know, I've always said to local governments, why aren't we doing this? And they always say, well, it's hard to get everybody together. And so we're finally getting people together. Why does it take so long? This is so funny because I have a friend that works in this space and he helps uh, basically smart cities, municipalities go digital because... It's like we're in 2023 and people are still doing things very archaic in city Fax hall. machines. Yeah. 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 And that's one of the biggest things I always say, and I've been saying to the federal government as well. And like, you know, if you're going to put money in, do it with us because we finally got everybody on board. If they start giving checks to every community, they're just going to go off and do their own thing. We want to make sure it's streamlined. But, you know, it's exciting. I, I'm really excited about this. I had the, the role of uh, minister responsible for innovation before. So I get to bridge my two worlds uh, with this. And that's why I love it. Um, but I think it, it could be potentially game changing uh, for the entire province. Eventually, my hope is we have one system that is the front facing, the user friendly front face of uh, all local governments so that, uh, you know, we can over time move that digital line and digitize more and more of the decision making. And by the way, as we do that, what will happen is then because a computer program needs A or B, right? Mm -hmm. It can have variables. It can have maybe this, maybe that. Over time, we're going to need to make sure that all our rules are easily understandable and that decisions can be made really simply. And uh, so this will help force that conversation on many of the things that we're doing. Well, if you can solve permit wait times, I feel like we'll vote you in again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the biggest stress I hear from everyone. I'm sure Jake's got some thoughts oh, on it. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it is really challenging, but uh, my... I. Following up on that, I, I in part have a question too, which is that how, I mean, ideally as a builder or any, any practitioner as a homeowner, that sort of sense of assurity that one wants, it would be lovely if we had something that was like a pre-approved mechanism, not only about the process, but the actual outcome. How can we, you know, start to look at being able to have a, like a catalog, like they used to at the CMHC of really good plans and people have a, a dynamic choice, but they also know with a surety, oh, I can buy that. And as as production and uh, looking at prefab, we can start to look at, hey, we can start to be cost competitive around yeah. what we're producing. Yeah, we are definitely exploring that. That is coming. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I was in Kelowna recently and, you know, they had this contest some years back where they had people design a triplex. And then they said, you know what, we're going to adopt this and this can be easy for a local, uh, local builder can just take it off the shelf and just submit it because it already fits within code. And 
they actually canceled that program. And I asked them why, and they said, because it was too successful. What? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because it was too successful. Because there were too many projects that were being built and they were looking so similar that they started getting community pushback that the housing was looking too similar. But it was effective in that people were just saying, yeah, 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 I'll take it and just go with it. And so I think what we're looking at now is how can we have some level set designs, but also enough variance between them so that it's not just one design, but uh, that is going to be key and it's tied yeah. to the digitizing of it. So those that want to have a completely different system can uh, to get uh, to from A to B can do it in a more efficient and effective way. But also those that are saying, hey, I'm good with that design that you've already pre-approved. We want to go ahead with it. We're moving in that direction as well. Yeah, I, I echo uh, Jake's comments, uh, Minister, with respect to, uh, you know, the laudable initiatives that are being undertaken here. And to your point about the, um, the uh, uh, standardized designs and so on and so forth, it's not without precedent. It happened at the end of the war. It happened with the Vancouver specials mm -hmm. and so forth. And, you know, I think that we're much more capable now of being able to come up with uh, some archetypical designs that in turn uh, do provide, you know, character streetscape and so on and so forth and meet those criteria, mm -hmm. but at the same time are very expeditious in order to produce and to be able to approve and so on and so forth. But one of the big things with all of the initiatives that are being undertaken is that uh, they're all good, it's all heading in the right direction and they're quite laudable, but we also have to deal with the culture of, uh, of what we're dealing with in terms of uh, processing through any municipality where it has to be a, as you and I think you've mentioned it before, we have to take politics out of housing and we have to be able to get a whole hands on deck uh, effort in order to address what is obviously a serious housing uh, shortage and crisis. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, nothing frustrates me more than, um, having to make decisions on decisions that have already been made. <laughs> you know, that's nothing frustrates me more than that. You know, we last year changed the rules to allow local governments to uh, use a new power, essentially, that allows them to skip zoning hearings if a project fits within the community plan. I think only five communities took us up on it. And Delta, my community, is one of the communities that took me took it up. And so they, the first project comes through. It's the largest project in my community it's ever been built by a mile. And, uh, and that's the one that comes through. And so I had a lot of folks who came to me, my office, and uh, essentially protest. And they, and their concern was, why is there no zoning meeting happening? Why can't we have our say? And my question back to them was, were you part of the community planning? Like when the community was building this plan of what could be built there, were you engaged in that conversation? And they said, yes. I said, did you support it at that time? They said, yes. I said, well, what are we talking about here? If you supported it when we were making a community plan, why is it different than when it's actually now being built? And so we need to create more certainty in that process. And we're looking at what legislative tools we can bring in to do that. And it goes to your your, your point, which was, um, you know, how do we create how do we depoliticize decision making when it comes to housing? How do we put more certainty in the process so that it's not like, hey, great, now I've got this project fits in the community plan. And by the way, I got to spend a year and a half trying to convince the neighbors that I still can do it. And so uh, it is overlap, but I think there's a pathway forward. Well, I think one of the things that you might never be able to sell, uh, solve is the fact that a lot of people want to feel like they're heard too. And I think sometimes with that, even if they do have certainty and they feel comfortable, they just want to be able to say what they can say yeah. and feel like the government hears them. Because mm -hmm. I think that's just, you know, going back into playing politics. But I think that's a big thing. It's a lot of times we just feel, it doesn't matter who's in, 
the government does not listen to us yeah. that are living here. Well, it, change is difficult too. And, and one of the questions I have is, is this, we're living, my street, South Surrey, mm -hmm. it was built about 40 years ago mm -hmm. and it was based on how they built houses about a hundred years ago. So how do we grapple with hanging on to our, the way we used to do things for a hundred years versus where we have to go in the future and where we have to evolve? Because mm -hmm. there are people valiantly clinging to the way things were. I want a street with single houses, mm -hmm. one car in each garage, et cetera, et cetera. And there's people like us going, no, no, each of these houses should have four families. Mm -hmm. how, how do we preserve what was and balance what will be yeah. with what is now? Yeah, and, and, the, and the two are kind of tied together. Uh, the two points you've made are tied together. You know, when we launched the Homes for People strategy and the Premier and EB announced it, uh, I was door knocking in my community because, you know, I like to get a test of what people are really thinking, you know, not the bubble that sometimes we live in. And there was a gentleman at the door who said to me, listen, I get it. My kids are moved to Alberta. Uh, and I get what you're doing, but I've been in this community for 45 years, you know, this is home and I don't want to see it change. And so what I said to him was the same thing I'll say to any audience I see, which is whether you want the community to change or not, it's been changing for the 45 years. The structures perhaps haven't been changing, but the people who can live in your community has been changing. By, by not allowing housing, you've actually, in limiting the amount of people that can be there, what you're essentially doing is driving the prices up and it can only be available to those who have the deepest pockets. Mm -hmm. So you're excluding young families. And you know, in the end, we all want vibrant, healthy communities. That is a goal I think everyone shares, but you don't have that if you don't have young families in it. If you don't have young families, that's not a healthy community. We wanna see that happening again. I think that just opens a bigger problem. And this is something I was talking to Mike before too, is like, you need to be able to solve consumerism. And I don't think that's something that we're going to be able to do. Well, I'd like to tie the two together and, and then bounce back to you, Minister, as well. I, what, what I have found, you know, when in our work, and we've done a lot of research in this area, that I think that the challenge becomes a bit of a dance, right? Which is that this is not going to be for everybody mm -hmm. and every block will not get redeveloped. But what where we're concerned is that as communities adopt this, that they themselves come up with programs which are fairly dynamic so that someone can build something like a simple coach house, be able to sell it or move into it and sell the principal residence or in the corner, maybe be able to do something that's more far more diverse that might have a lived work on the bottom floor and a, a few apartments above it uh, or a few flats above it, like a stacked home home. And I think that's going to be the opportunity that unlocks a lot of this, which is fundamentally, if the program is to succeed, it's going to be attractive to people mm -hmm. and then that will breed more success. So I this, yeah. I, my question to you, Minister, in part is then how do we, how can we do something that's going to have to be a little nuanced and, and still widespread? Well, I would say that, you know, somebody asked me if I was on a war uh, path against single family homes and, uh, and I, you know, no, we're not. I mean, as long as people want them and they can afford them, they're going to continue to be built in communities around the province. What we're saying is don't make it hard for people who want to live in a different type of housing structure. You know, don't make somebody who wants to build a single family home uh, make it easier for them. And somebody who's happy to live with a couple of friends and have a couple of units in, in the same structure, same size, have to go through all the, uh, you know, hoops to make it happen. And so that's essentially what we're looking to do is to enable it. And, you know, the, the question you raised earlier, one of the big pieces we've said is we're going to allow up to four units on single family lots and and, uh, and six in, in, in other spaces um, and, and even more around transit. Because the truth is we need to be able to allow more to types of housing to be built appropriate to the where people are at. I have uh, friends who, when we announced that, came to me and said, 
you know what we're going to do? The four of us, not me included, they didn't include me, but four of them that were in the room, are going to buy a home, tear it down, and build four units, and we're all going to live in the same space. And then I joked, why wasn't I invited? But, you know, this is the type of thinking I think we'll see where young families will be able to say, you know what, I can, let's do this. Let's try a different way of doing it. Or, you know, in my community, we have a woman named Kathleen Higgins who tore her house down built four units, she has all her kids and their families living in separate units in that same lot that they grew up in. I mean, how amazing is that for them? And so we want to provide those opportunities for folks uh, everywhere in the province. And I, I'd like to throw in on that one too, or build on it. What's really interesting as it develops too, is that what we see is when it comes to a lot of the property right now is held, mm -hmm. uh, properties with a lot of equity held by older people. This is one of the best estate planning tools because what happens in that co-ownership that we've seen becomes very complicated as, as that's dissolved. But when you can actually at that point gift land, mm -hmm. and I think, and then something is built on, that's really important. And I think the fundamentally, the thing that I think we haven't even realized yet, which we will, which is super exciting, is I think in many cases actually mitigates land speculation mm -hmm. because we, this is more about land redistribution than land speculation. Hmm. Well, like I was saying before, we got to get out of the idea that uh, homes are going to make you rich. And that's uh, unfortunately a problem that I think a lot of things happen. And a lot of, a lot of people my age group who don't even have them, they're like, I have to own three properties or I'm never going to get ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the mindset. That's why I say we have to change that consumer mindset. But I don't think really anybody's going to be able to solve that yeah, particular problem. That's a huge yeah. global issue. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's an issue for, because our system is built the way it is. And some people come to me and say, why don't you just do what Singapore does? And I'm like, they do some amazing things, digital processes. They get, you know, projects approved in four months, high rises, like four months. That's crazy. But, you know, they also own, the state owns like 80% of the land. So, I mean, you know, there is just, you can't compare the two. Loving this conversation, we just have to take a couple moments for a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. Measure Twice Cut Once is grateful to our podcast partners, Fortis BC, VicoStone Canada, Inc., and Trail Appliances. Support from our partners helps us share expert knowledge and resources with families looking to build, design, and renovate the home right for you. VicoStone is renowned for providing exquisite quartz slabs, ideal for both kitchen countertops and vanities. Their extensive range caters to diverse preferences, offering everything from the versatile builder collection to the opulent and luxurious designs. Established as a reliable and preferred choice in the industry, they have earned the trust and admiration of local stone fabricators and interior designers. Trail Appliances makes everyday life better with the best selection in Western Canada, hassle-free delivery, and a price match guarantee. So you'll always get the best deal. Trail Appliances. Make sure you'll love buying an appliance as much as you'll love using it. And we all need reliable and efficient equipment for better comfort, health, and safety of our homes. Whether you want to adopt some energy-saving habits or take on a major energy efficiency upgrade, no matter what your budget, Fortis BC can help you save energy. Be sure to visit ForestBC.com rebates where you can also find amazing tips on low and no-cost ways to save energy, plus buying advice for energy-efficient products. Okay, welcome back. We were just talking about those four friends who didn't include you. Yeah. Uh, there's coach houses for that, by the way. Um, but for, for a scenario like that, any one of us getting together, or any four of us for the back, getting together to build a house together, um, can we talk about how the province is going to help things like wraparound services, step code, and, and things like cost being per square foot? Because 
in my mind, building four units should cost four times as much as a single family home. But we know having talked to Jake in the past, that's absolutely not the case. So how are we going to balance all of these things out so it is affordable and attainable for those people? Because there's no point building those four units if they still cost a million dollars per unit. Yeah, no. And, you know, there's a couple of things. When I say to folks, we're going to build, we got to build housing faster. You know, they think right away, we're going to compromise on safety. We are not compromising on safety. And uh, and I think everyone in the industry agrees that safety is paramount. And we have to make sure the housing gets built in a safe and effective way. But at the same time, uh, that we uh, can continue to build it. And so, you know, we uh, we know the code is going to change. We've already put it out there that the code is going to change. Part of it is around accessibility. You know, we have an aging population. We have more and more folks who are going to need housing to be able to address their needs. Uh, and some of it is around environment and, uh, you know, climate change and, and uh, making sure our housing is built in a way that's climate friendly going to the future is going to be vitally important. We do have a big challenge because the national code uh, has raised some issues around seismic activity. Um, and, uh, and so I always say to folks, do you believe the research and and overwhelmingly people say yes we believe the research then i say well let's figure it out let's get down to the table and figure out how we're going to navigate this next piece around it so that we can have the safety but we can also get housing built uh, in an effective way and you know i'm always open to that type of thing and i'm glad to hear accessibility because like our city in general for homes is just not accessible i have a good friend in a wheelchair and that's the biggest thing like she was even just complaining about it the other day so it's like why aren't we thinking of this in our communities because our community should include everybody. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the discussion that happens, right? When we say we have to increase accessibility, you know, I often hear, well, there's, there's a cost to attach to it. Yes, there's also a cost not to do it, and especially with an aging population. And so this is the balance that we have to try to find as we move forward because we don't like, I met a lawyer who, you know, is he's been in law for 15 years. He can't even get into the courtroom to see his clients, you know, because our building structures were not built with that mindset in the past. And so we can't address everything that's been built in the past, but certainly we got to think about that as we go forward. And, and that's the balance that we're trying to find as we move forward. Like it's, it's not just aging, it's building for people that have current disabilities as well that are having, that don't feel included in the communities. Yeah. Well, it all fun f comes under the umbrella of flexibility, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's flexibility for mobility or flexibility for financing. Jake, I want to ask you the same question because we were chatting about that with wraparound, uh, wraparound services, step code, cost per square foot. Can you give us the builder's perspective on all that and how that might change and, and positively affect those of us who are either in the market or looking to get in the market in the near future? Yeah, I, there's definitely in this conversation, there's two things I wanted to touch on. So one is it would be, and I'm sure there's steps happening with this, but the more the province could get involved so that things as simple, without getting too deep in the weeds, but things as like PMT, transformers, uh, that the city starts to open up municipal mm -hmm. land, that those service providers, because I think a lot of the infrastructure will actually, that we have in most cities, will handle the volume that we're talking about, but the distribution mechanisms mm -hmm. are, aren't there. And we need, I think we need that kind of provincial negotiation leadership with those utility providers. So we're not looking at these homeowners really getting stuck. Like a good example, we have these multiplexes in Vancouver, they're accommodating a, a P, one of the PIT transformers in the, on the property. But there's two things, horribly expensive for that mm -hmm. undertaking. But either one, parking's probably the biggest concern and yet it's taking up a parking stall, you know? Mm. So for us to be able to open up municipal or uh, uh, land to be able, oh, we could put that in the, at least if we can put that in, the, in a vault mm. or put that on the boulevard would be really, 
really, really helpful. And for the utility provider, look at augmenting those costs over the neighborhood who will benefit from her rather than the uh, the homeowner. Are those discussions happening? Yeah, there are some of those conversations happening and, you know, we're always open to um, practical solutions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, hydro comes up a lot. Uh, folks are like, you know, I, I want to build this project, but I can't even get power to the site. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to do that? So, uh, you know, credit to BC Hydro. They uh, they heard the premier when the, the strategy got announced. They've been doing a lot of engagement right now about how they can be more proactive. But I think what's going to be key is we need to have communities doing their community plans according to their housing needs up front so that the utility providers, everybody knows what infrastructure is going to be built. Everybody knows what power is going to be required. That is the type of planning which will get housing built faster. And, uh, and that's that's where we're heading. The other thing I think is going to be really interesting as we roll out or as explored, there's more of the set designs or at least a fabrication techniques. It can be modulated change. It's going to be really interesting because that flexibility, to your point, Mike, I think it'll be reflected because you can have mills putting together packages like they did in the 1920s. Meanwhile, you can also have the prefab doing components of those houses and be able to stock them. And that's where you're going to start to get real affordability. That's where you start to really drive down supply costs. Exciting. I think that uh, the ministry has uh, spoken to the fact that uh, we don't want to compromise quality, we don't want to compromise safety and so on and so forth. But And, and it is a balancing act in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the uh, layers of regulation that are being uh, applied in order to um, achieve those goals and to look forward to the greater resiliency and so on in the future. But at the same time, there is cost associated with that. And in particular, with respect to some of those wraparound services, uh, you touched on uh, the hydro in particular. And, you know, part of what's driving that, as Jake alluded to, is, is very expensive uh, scenarios where uh, in terms of electrification, uh, you know, we are um, focusing on that, but we don't have necessarily the infrastructure that's appropriate. But by the same token, we're also seeing specs that seem to be, you know, significantly overinflated. And uh, I think that, you know, one of the tacks that uh, we've been uh, promoting is the fact that we need to use all of the tools in the, in the box, not just uh, focus on any one particular narrow focus to be able to uh, realize those opportunities. So in particular with, and Jake can speak to this too, when you start looking at some of these smaller units and we start uh, applying some of the higher uh, regulatory and energy standards to it, it becomes a game of uh, diminishing returns. And uh, in some cases, you know, the metrics just don't, don't work, especially in smaller units. So by saying, okay, we're going to have uh, electrification, we're going to uh, provide for EV charging stations and heat pumps and all of the other electrical loads, and that's gonna drive the need for a 400 amp service. And by the way, the cost of upgrading that 400 amp service is $100,000, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at alternatives that include uh, um, uh, like solar or potentially uh, RNG, and in particular RNG because the infrastructure is already there. If we don't reuse and recycle uh, the gases that are being uh, utilized for RNG, then they escape into the atmosphere anyways as uh, methane at 86% or 86 times worse than any kind of CO2. And at the same time, we have uh, equipment and opportunity to be using very high efficiency equipment that would mitigate the amount of CO2 uh, um, contributions to a great degree. Great points, Ron. Um, we only have a little bit of time left. 
And we've spent a lot of time talking about what this is and how it will change things. I'd like to use Jennifer and myself as subjects to talk about, okay, so we've have our features. Let's talk about the benefits. So I'm going to use myself. I'm married, father of three. We own a home in South Surrey, and we definitely need a lot more space. And there are a lot more options available for my family now than there may have been five years ago. Jennifer's different. She's a millennial. She's a single. She's single. She's a renter. She doesn't own. And short of her taking an hour and a half drive to come into work every or day. Or getting married to have a joint property. <laughs> absolutely. How, how is she ever going to own? So in both of these scenarios, and these are very realistic scenarios, how will this legislature mm-hmm. and legislation be able to fix I don't want to say fix, but improve our lives so we can better ourselves and take advantage of living in this amazing province that we live in. And, and that's core to the, the Homes for People strategy. I mean, the strategy is kind of end to end. Anything from, you know, you're struggling and you're sleeping in a park and you need to get to shelter to... Uh, you know, you're you're wanting to get into the housing market. You, Unless you got some single guy friends for me. Uh, yeah, you know what? We can have, definitely talk about it after the podcast, especially the the four that want to build a fourplex without me. Maybe I get to be They're, part of yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Maybe I can connect you with them. But there's, but you know, the other point is, yeah, we have families who are in housing, but the housing is not adequate for the growing family, and so. This is the beauty of where we're going with the housing needs reports and the Housing Supply Act. It's not just saying like some provinces where um, they, well, Ontario, where they say just build units. Here's the units you need to have. We know it's more complex than that because it's not just units. We need to have four bedroom uh, place for you. We need to have maybe one or two bedroom place for you. And so how do we ensure that we're building all types of housing? And I get it. Uh, you know, the studio spaces and one bedrooms are cheaper to build. Uh, you know, I get it. But if we can get the density approved, if we can get pre-zoning done and make it faster for people to, to build housing, then there's ability for more options to be built into that uh, that structure. And that's that's where we're going to, because we know that everyone's needs are different. And so you know, the challenge for me as Minister of Housing is, um, you know, anytime I do something uh, and I say, well, this is for young families, I get older folks saying, what about us? Uh, and so we need to make sure that the strategy works for everyone. And, and by the way, it will if we can enact all the pieces that are engaged with it. Yeah, and I think it's really exciting because we seem to talk a lot about number of units, but we're really not talking a lot about the type of units. I know Jake and I have to, and, and Jennifer have spoken about this a lot, um, stratification of these units. So it's great if I tear down my house and build a 3,500 square foot house to replace it, but that just takes care of me. If I build a duplex with two rental units, how can I leverage that with stratification yeah. and things like laneway houses and stuff? So I'm, I'm curious your perspective, but I'm also curious the builder's perspective as well because... That's that's where the magic happens in the middle. Well, I'll jump in this for a second. From our perspective, the stratification is really leads to viability. You know, without stratification, it's going to be very challenging. And and I think that like the low hanging fruit in this spectrum of options are, are really going to be being able to do something like a, a coach house, lane house in the back and be able to stratify that because the capital investment is going to be so low. And in many cases, that's probably going to be the most easily uh, and most uh, palatable option for people. And to, to have that viable, if we look at Vancouver, we've built roughly six, 7,000 lane homes. If we could have strata titled them, we could have, uh, I could say with candor, quadrupled what we produced in the last 10 years. And then those would have been really attainable homes. So it would have been really interesting outcome. 
Yeah, and you know that is going to be the path forward. We have to head down a road where if four units are being built, we don't want it to be one landlord, this uh, owner that has three units that they're renting out and they're living in one. I mean, it may be the case in some places. Um, most people wouldn't probably do that. We want to make sure that there's four families living there at the same uh, at the same location. So, so my four friends, uh, the ones I'm going to introduce you to, oh, after, perfect. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they'll be able to have their own units within that uh, that space. I think it's going to be key. Yeah, but, and I think strata titling shouldn't be, we shouldn't be afraid of it because currently strata units comprise about 30% of our rental stock, yeah. you know, and, and so it doesn't mitigate that. People will do it for whatever reason. They'll hold on to a unit, rent it, but maybe sell two other ones. And, and, and again, I think it's that option, and this is a charm of the program, if with a full enough set of options, this really starts to be something for everybody as opposed to something that's enforced, that's finite, that has its unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. I'm not against stratification. I guess, again, it's just going to the point is just ensuring that it is the people being in those units that need to be in those units. And it's not somebody um, trying. And I know you're going to always have somebody try to get rich off of it, even if uh, maybe you put all the legislation in place. But it's the same thing. Like I know on the news recently, they said there's more um, Airbnbs and rentals mm-hmm. here in Vancouver. So it's like, how do you stop a lot of that stuff? And it's just ensuring that these programs get put in place and the right people get homes. Yeah, I can talk about short-term rentals all day, but I think uh, there's a lot of other topics that you guys yeah. want to cover today. But, it, you, you know, your concern is real because, you know, I hear that from folks when I say we need more housing. They're like, but for who? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're building the housing, but if it's just being bought up by investors, then, you know, what about us? And so I think that's a real concern, especially you know listen this the the next generation is the first generation that's going to be worse off than the generations before like let's take a moment just to reflect on you know how you know scary that 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 is and so things need to change uh and one of the things i hear overwhelmingly from young folks is that question and so you know, we need to ensure that first off, we're building housing that is more affordable, so that different type of housing, so that it's attainable for for, for young folks, uh, young families, and and again, some of the policies we're bringing is is targeted towards that. And then, but we have a lot more work to do over the years to ensure that uh, everyone has the type of housing that they need. Yeah, and I, I will add again, what's so unique about this is is a once in a multi generation opportunity to look at this. I mean, we're really we're looking at kind of post first world war land use and going what should we do that's appropriate now and i think the charm of this and again i've used this phrase before but really what we're trying to do is we're really breaking breaking the back of land speculation with this and and that really speaks to yours we're, we're historically we've looked at more of a speculative approach to land this this is breaking up what become now is the speculation has got to a point now we have to break it apart and then that creates an egalitarian platform we're at the point of the show, which is my least favorite point of the show. <laughs> this is the point where we've run out of time and have to wrap up, unless you can stay for another hour and keep going. <laughs> what are the odds? Yeah, another hour will be difficult, but I'm happy to come back because this is a great show. I've had a chance to listen to it. And, uh, and you know, I think the folks who uh, are going to make the difference in our communities around housing are listening to this. So. Oh, that's awesome. Back. We would love to have you back for season seven. There's a lot of stuff to talk. Well, there's hours of stuff to talk about, in fact. Um, unfortunately, we can't do that today. So we will say this, Minister Callum, thank you so much for taking some time today out of your busy schedule to share your insight and your overview of the Housing Supply Act. Jake, for insight on small housing and development in general. And Ron, for sharing your overarching industry insight and experience. This discussion 
can and should provide homeowners and citizens across BC looking to buy a home, help them learn more about the benefits of the Housing Supply Act. And it is a really exciting piece of legislation when you actually look at it. And the issues surrounding housing affordability in general, it's a complex topic and one that hits home, no pun intended, for everyone living in BC. We learned a ton of things today and there are a ton of factors at play. Hey, there's the the importance of supply to meet the ongoing demand for housing, the challenges, red tape and zoning issues, interest rates and a cost associated with development, NIMBYism, and getting everyone aligned to embrace solutions such as the Housing Supply Act, noting the importance of choice and flexibility. And by flexibility, we're talking about things like wraparound services and alignment between the municipalities and the province. When we're building homes and communities for people today and in the future. And one last comment from both of you, uh, Minister Callan and Jake and, and Ron, if he's there. Yeah, and Ron. Yeah, I'm still here. Ron, you go first. You've been nominated. Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Minister, for taking the time to uh, share your insights with me, or with us, rather. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, The initiatives you've undertaken are certainly a step in the right direction. After 20 years of uh, suggesting that we have to address the supply issue, I think we're at a crossroads here where, where every level of government is looking to uh, achieve those goals and uh, we just need to try to uh, do so as expeditiously as possible in a collaborative environment that uh, provides incentive to make things happen rather than uh, introduce obstacles and or restrictions. I'll jump in, I guess it's my turn. I'll, I, just, I would add and like to build on what Ron's saying, which is I think you know this is the most prudent and thoughtful direction forward. And I think tackling those supply issues at this level, which is both modest and meaningful in a, in a, in a genuine sense, I think it's a really insightful approach that the, your ministry's taken. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and you know, again, thank you to both of you because uh, you've both contributed uh, to where we're going. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, when we are building the plans, we're not just doing it with the expertise in British Columbia, although we have amazing expertise. We look at across the board, what are good ideas? We don't care what political party they come from, what jurisdiction, and uh, and really couldn't have done it with all, with all of your supports. And we have a lot more work to do. So looking forward to being back next year to talk about where we're at and what next thing we have to do. We already can't wait because it was such a great conversation today. Before we go, I do have to take care of just a little bit of business. Our good friends and podcast partners, Fortis BC, are back with a chance to win a Napoleon Prestige P500 stainless steel natural gas barbecue valued at $1,445 compliments of Fortis BC. Just listen, like this episode, and you will if you've listened to it, for your chance to win. Details are available at haven.ca slash measure twice, cut once. And for notes and links to everything mentioned on today's episode, including resources shared by Minister Callan, Jake Fry, and Ron, go to haven.ca slash measure twice, cut once. Thank you to Trail Appliances, Fortis BC, VicoStone Canada, Ramey Films, AI Technology and Design, JPod Creations, and you for joining us. Next episode, we'll be talking with the 2023 Haven Awards Builder of the Year, Jim Smith of Smithwood Builders. He'll be sharing lots of details from his award-winning projects, including some costings you don't want to miss. Be sure to follow us so you never miss an episode. See you next week. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.